Well, it's good to be here. Good to be back with you. My wife and I, as Pastor said, have recently moved to Tennessee. We were both born and raised in Oklahoma. So we've abandoned our roots, replanted ourselves. Hopefully God has replanted us in Tennessee. Give us a few years and, you know, we can see better in hindsight. But we're uh, back home for the first time having holidays as being the kids who were gone and come back again. And it's been an amazing experience. I'm glad to have my wife in service with, with us this time. Um, those of you who know Celebrity Pastor on Twitter, you know that yesterday, he said the way that you identify a celebrity pastor is that he's always talking about his smoking hot wife. That's one of the ways, right? So I, I'm going to say I love that my beautiful wife is here with me as a way of acknowledging that I'm not a celebrity pastor. I don't have whatever that takes, but I am glad that my wife is with me. And one of the great things about this Christmas is that while we were here, completely unexpectedly, we found out that we are going to have our third child. Absolutely. And it was, just, it was a gift to be able to, to find that out here with family and friends and with people who could share the excitement with us. So really, really, really happy about that. My, uh, my oldest daughter is eight. Well, my only daughter is eight. And my son is four. And while we were saying the creed, I was reminded of this. You know, you said every time we say the creed, something changes. Well, this is something that changed for me. This weekend, we were staying with my in-laws, and I heard my son do something I don't think I've ever heard anyone before, ever do before. He used the third person of the Trinity as an expletive. Like, I've heard people say God as an expletive, and even Jesus as an expletive. I've never heard anyone do what my son did, which was, oh, Holy Spirit, like, <laughs> as an expletive. And today, when we were saying the creed, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? So I don't know, I don't know if that just, if that's a sign that I really am Pentecostal theologian, or, or I don't know what it means. But not a celebrity pastor, like, that's for sure. A couple weeks, weekends ago, this, I've got to get to the sermon, but I've got to tell you this too. A couple weekends ago, I was preaching at my in-law's small rural Oklahoma church, and my father-in-law introduced us. True story not making this up. This isn't edited for your entertainment. I mean, this is what happened. And he introduces us. My wife was going to sing and I was going to speak this way. He says, my daughter is coming to sing and my wife's son-in-law is going to speak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just holding me at arm's length. And then, as if that weren't enough, he followed that with, she sings like an angel. He preaches out of style. And everyone just kind of looked around like, is that a saying? I mean, is that something that... <laughs> so I have no idea what that means. I, I just owned it, though, right away, that what I do, I preach out of style. That's what keeps me from being the celebrity pastor. See how this is all connecting together? <laughs> I, pre I preach out of style. So I'll let, you, I'll let you judge for yourselves on that. What I do want to do today is to kind of begin with a prelude by looking at an image that I'm sure at least half of you, not more, have already seen. It's the image of a fresco... It's a little over 100 years old. You can see it here. That was painted on the wall in a church in Spain. The image you're seeing now, actually, of course, is a photographic reproduction of that. You can see that over the years, the paint has peeled away from the wall and that the image is starting to be disfigured. How many of you saw this last year? You'll, you'll, some of you will remember when you see the next image. And one of the older ladies, parishioners in the congregation. It didn't have to be a lady. It didn't have to be an older lady. But in this case, it happened to be an older lady in the congregation who was an amateur artist, underscore the word amateur, 
artist, decided that she, she didn't want to leave Jesus disfigured. She wanted to touch up this image so that people could see their Lord. And this is, this is an image, originally was painted as an image, hold them back if you will, back it up for just a moment, sorry, um, of Jesus right before he's crucified. He's already been condemned, right? He's already been condemned, but he hasn't, he hasn't been crucified yet. So that's what you're supposed to see here. So this good-natured, sweet, sincere woman brings her talents to play, and this is what we get. I don't want to be a harsh critic, but I'm thinking that doesn't really help, right? When this, this is one of the things, uh, I, those of you who care about this kind of thing, one of, one of the people that, I, that I'm interested in is a man named Stanley Hauerwas, who used to teach ethics at Duke. And one of the things he says all the time is, sincerity just doesn't really count for much when you're talking about living the Christian life. And this is a good example of that. No, no doubt she was sincere, but this didn't really help, right? And part of the burden of being and doing what I have to do, you know, being called to be a theologian, is that this stuff is funny to me for a little while, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, though. Like, this woman, with the best of intentions, took her talents and put them to really destructive use. Like, really disfigured Jesus, right? And as funny as that is, and, and a year later, I mean, I've been looking at this image, you know, more or less once a day for a year, it's still... It's still funny, but there's something about it that I think speaks to me, almost like a visual parable of our condition. First, in the ways in which how many of us have only ever seen this Jesus? The Jesus that somebody touched up for us, who's really just a disfiguration of the one who is the son of the father of the God of Abraham. And even more striking and more sobering, how many people have only seen this Jesus through me? How many times have I put my hands on Jesus in such a way that what I reflected, what I refracted to them was not the image of the Son of God, but was this kind of beastly, inappropriate, destructive reproduction? So with that kind of serving as background radiation, I just want us to kind of reflect for a little bit on what does it mean to be the image of God and to, to image God rightly. And so just meditate a little bit on how Scripture talks to us about these things. Of course, when, when we think about the image of God, all of our minds go immediately first to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which says that God created man or created human beings in his image created human beings in his image. But as people who know scripture, we understand that that image was through sin marred, disfigured. That to be human is to live a frustrated, disfigured life. We are not what we were meant to be. And to be human is to have an inkling that we are not whole, that we are not quite right, that we were meant for more than this. We were meant to be more than this. That as Scripture makes clear, we were meant to be God's co-creators. That God created us to share with God in ruling over this earth and reflecting God's image to this earth and reflecting the image of nature back to God. We were meant to be the people who mediated between the heavenlies and the earth to make God present here and to make nature present there. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come through us and be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we were meant for. But to be sinful people, to be fractured in that way, is to know that we are not capable of that. 
that sin keeps us from that. That's one of the reasons that the second commandment forbids us making images. We were meant to be the image, but as disfigured images, God takes away from us the freedom to make images because he knows that when we, as disfigured as we are, try to represent him, we will disfigure him, that we will make idols who actually misrepresent the glory of God. And so he forbids it. But it's also because God knows that he intends to send his own image, that he intends to make an image, not graven in stone, but fleshed through a virgin to live this life before us and show us that this is what God looks like. And this is the insight that the apostles have to who Jesus is. So we see, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul reflects and says that we see the light of the gospel that shines through the glory of Christ or displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what's happened is that Paul has recognized that God always intended to send his image, that when we were created in the image of God, we were created in the image of this one who is Jesus. And that God had always intended for this one to come. But because of sin, when he comes, we disfigure him. We disfigure the very one who is God's own image. And part of what it means to be Christian is to be arrested by the claim that this life, this life that Jesus lives, this is what it looks like to be human. And we're the people who are called to live that life, to follow with him in it. We are, as Romans 8.29 says, we are purposed to be conformed to the image of the Son. Sometimes we talk about salvation as if salvation is primarily about not going to hell or going to heaven. But that's not the purpose we were made for. We were meant to be conformed to the image of the Son because in being conformed to Him, we become what humans were meant to be. We become all that we were meant to be. We enact that most profoundly at this table. Today, when you came and took of this loaf and this cup, you were at the same time singing or hearing sung, this is our Father's world. And at this table, you were taking things that we've made, our culture, bread and wine, that we took from nature, things that God gave us, the fruit of the vine and the wheat on the hills, and combining God's nature with our culture through the Holy Spirit, making this the body and blood of Christ, we are doing what humans were always meant to do, which is marry heaven and earth. That in us, what God always purposed humans to do, God was doing this morning. This is our Father's world. And we're the people who get to live that out in front of the watching world and say, this is what God purposed us for. This is what we were made to do and to be. And nothing less than that. That's why Paul celebrates us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was the temple for Israel? The temple was the place where heaven and earth remained in contact. Sin had ruptured that relationship, had separated earth from heaven, had separated man from God. But Israel was the priestly people who reconnected the God who is present in heaven to the peoples of the earth. And the temple was the locale, the location, the habitat for that to take place. And when Paul says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit together, not we individually, but we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying you are the location, you're the habitat where God's purpose for humanity is played out as a kind of advertisement for what's going to happen in the end. That what we're enacting at one scale here at this table is a prefiguration, a prelude of what's going to happen to all of creation in the end. 
That's good news. And to be a Christian is to be claimed to live that calling and nothing less than that. But how does that happen? I want to draw your attention back to the text, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And I want to ask you to read it with me carefully. Reflect on it as we're reading it. This is one of those familiar passages of Scripture that I think we pass by too quickly. And I want us to think just carefully for a moment about what Paul is saying here. We all, with unveiled faces, he says, contemplate the Lord's glory. And I want to draw your attention first to that. Our faces are unveiled. We're contemplating the Lord's glory. And as we do that, we are being transformed. You notice the language of process. Not we have been transformed, not we shall be transformed. We are in the process of being transformed. As we're gazing at his glory, we're being transformed into his image. Just as we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, there's this relationship of glory to image. We contemplate his glory as we contemplate his glory. We're made into his image. And what happens to us in the process is that we move from glory to glory. That's King James language. I, was, I cut my teeth on the King James, right? The first sermon I ever preached, I was six or seven years old, and it was about the King James Bible. And one of the lines from that sermon, and if you don't remember anything else from today, this is probably what you'll be burdened to remember. I said... If you, and I have a recording of it, don't look for it. Um, if you read any other version than the King James Version, you might as well, and then I listed some sins. You ready for these? You might as well smoke a hundred cigarettes a day, kill someone every hour, or, and here's the heavyweight one, be a Catholic priest. Like those, those were the three things I said as a six-year-old kid, right? Yeah. I may have just vetoed my right to be here. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. that. That's really what's said. It's not true. Smoking hot wife is, is agreeing with it right here. So, the point being, I've just interrupted myself now. But the, the point being that in King James we get this language of going from glory to glory. And here's what, here's what I, I think as I meditate on this passage. As we reflect on Christ's glory, whatever that is, I'll say something about it in a moment. We're made into his image. And as we're made into his image, what happens to us is that we experience our own glory and we pass from one degree of that glory to another. We reflect on his glory, we receive our own glory as we're made into his image. And here's, here's what I think is going on. Glory in this passage is a way of trying to name what happens when who you are becomes clear. Whatever glory means here, Paul is using it to suggest that Christ's glory is that moment in which who he really is becomes clear. In fact, if you study a little bit about the way that this word, it's doxa in Greek, gets translated down through the years in Scripture, it very quickly starts being interpreted with the word clear. In Latin, it's from clearness to clearness. Our earliest English Bibles, in fact, translated out of the Latin rather than the Greek that way, from clearness to clearness. So here's what I think Paul is saying, that when we contemplate Jesus' glory and we're starting to be made like him, what happens to us is that it becomes clearer and clearer what humans are supposed to be. That day to day in our life, in various moments, there are these snaps of clarity. That's what it looks like to be human. In my Pentecostal tradition, we had something called testimony service, right? The worst moments of my life came in testimony service. 
I mean, I wish I had like two hours to speak to you, and I literally could tell you 40 or 50 stories that you would not believe, but did in fact happen that people did in testimony service. But in spite of my experience as a theologian, I actually believe that testimony is absolutely crucial to what it means to be human. So contrary to my experience, I'm going to tell you that testimony is absolutely hugely important because it's in testimony that we get snaps of, that's what it looks like to be human. For instance... I can never tell this story without crying. You'll have to forgive me for that. But my wife and I met a man and his wife a few years ago. And not long after we met him, they found out that he was, his body was just riddled with cancer. It was weeks between the time that they diagnosed him and he passed away. And we were there with him in the room with his family and some friends just a few hours before he passed away. And being there with that man who was in unbelievable pain... And to listen to him interact with his kids and his friends and with us, I had a moment of clarity. And I realized that what it means to be like Jesus is to die with that kind of grace. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a preacher. He was just a rural farmer in rural Oklahoma who went to that rural Baptist church. But when he died, there was a glimpse. That's what it means to be human. Another example of the same kind of thing. Recently, you saw on the news, Dallas Cowboys linebacker Jerry Brown was killed in the car wreck, driven by Josh Brent, another Dallas Cowboys player who had been drinking. I was watching the news when they interviewed Jerry Brown's mother and grandmother. Any of you see this? And see the way that they responded in, the, in, the, in a very obtuse, inappropriate way. The reporter asked how they felt about Josh Brent. And my immediate response was anger. Why would you ask that question in this moment? But their response was, we grieve for him. He's our son too. He's our son too. And the day of the funeral, Josh Brent was invited to be right between those two women at the funeral of the man that he killed, and I got a glimpse of clarity. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be human. Reading stories, for instance, the story of this Abbot in this desert enclave with other monks. And one of the monks sins grievously. The story doesn't tell you what he did. He just made, he committed some grievous sin. And the other monks insist to the, to the father, he has to be outed. We cannot have him in this community. You have to oust him. And so the father agrees. And they come to their gathering. All of them are gathered around. He makes the, the, the declaration that you've been excommunicated from this community. Take your belongings, which, I mean, they're desert monks, so have nothing, right? Take that and leave. And when the man walks away from the community, that abbot takes his bedroll and walks right out with him. And I get clarity. That's what it looks like to be human. Or a bishop in the African church in the fourth century who has a woman in his parish who cannot overcome her sin. She had been a temple prostitute before she had been born into the church, and she couldn't overcome her temptations. Her imagination had been so scarred with perversion that she could not rid herself of the temptations. And so after years of struggle, her story reaches the bishop, and the bishop says, bring her to me. Have her lay her hands on me, and she did. And they gathered around, and he said, and when we pray, her temptations will become mine. And I will live with her struggles until I die. And I had clarity for a moment. That's what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. 
That's what it looks like to fulfill the law of Christ. That's what it looks like to be human. And if we want to be what we are called to be, then we have to have the kind of life where every once in a while, in specific moments, people get clarity. That's what it looks like to be human. But how does that happen? I think Paul gives us a hint in 2 Corinthians 3.13 as Paul is grappling with how does this transfiguration happen? He says it happens differently from how it happened to Moses. Now, I don't know how you read Scripture, but for me, reading Scripture is a way of evoking imagination for me. When I read this in Scripture, we are not like Moses, I immediately wonder, well, what does that mean? Why, first of all, why is Paul saying that? Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul is a Jew. Paul sees Moses as the paradigmatic Israelite. How can he say we are not like Moses? Then I, I want to ask, well, but in what ways do we differ from Moses? And I won't take time to read it this morning for one reason. It's familiar to you. But when you go back and read this story that Paul is drawing from, which is in Exodus 33, you see that there are multiple ways in which we are not like Moses. Our experience of God is different from his, and because it's different from his, we experience this transformation. I just want to point out five ways in which it's different. The first one is this. Unlike Moses, unlike Moses, we are not hidden from the face of God. We see the face of God. We have, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have seen God's face. And unlike Moses, we are not hidden in the rock while God passes by. We're called out to follow that God. We are called to follow him and become what he calls us to be. So Moses is passively experiencing the glory of God. We're called to enact the glory of God, to experience it with God as we move toward God. But why did God hide Moses in the rock and only let, God, and only let Moses see his back? Because that experience for Moses was God letting Moses see as much of the glory as was possible without killing him. Remember what he says? No one can see my face and live. But because we are called to see the fuller glory, we are called out from the rock to follow him, not to see his back, but to see his face. And that means, third, we're called to die. To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is to die. We sometimes preach the gospel as if the gospel is that Jesus died instead of us. He died so we don't have to die. You understand, that's, that's, not, that's simply not true. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he died, and that because he died, therefore all may die and be raised to life in him. His death is not instead of ours, it's death that makes room for our death. His death is one that can include us. We can die his death with him, and in dying his death with him, be raised to his life. And the only way to be raised to his life is to die his death with him. Only when we're buried with him in baptism can we be raised to newness of life, as Paul says in Romans. There's no other way to have the joy on the other side of the cross without taking up your cross daily, denying yourself, losing your life. There is no other way. So our experience of God, unlike Moses, is to see the face of God and die from it. Die to this world. As Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. And if we're going to be transfigured into the kind of people whose lives are snaps of clarity of what it means to be human, there is no other way than by taking up our cross daily and living the kind of life Jesus calls us to live, the Sermon on the Mount. 
loving our enemies, forgiving those who wrong us, praying for those who abuse us, going the extra mile, giving them our cloak as well as our coat. That's what it looks like. You notice that in this story, Moses is hidden in a broken place in the rock. And it's true at one level that we too are hidden in the wounds of Christ. Christ is the rock. The brokenness of the rock speaks of his wounds. We're hidden in those wounds. But what it means to be Christians, Christian is more than just to be hidden in the wounds of Christ. It means to let the wounds of Christ be in us. That what he experiences, we experience. That what happens to the head happens to the body. And if he was rejected and despised by men, then to be his people is to suffer rejection and despite. If he's betrayed by one who's close to him, then to be Christian is to expect betrayal. It's to have those same wounds show up in our life because how else are we going to look like the crucified one if we aren't on a cross? How else are we going to reflect the image of the one with the crown of thorns and the weight of sin upon his life if we don't bear the same kind of pain? This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that he rejoices in his sufferings because he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's body. Christ's sufferings as the head were complete, but now we as his people have to relive that story. We have to experience again that same rejection. We have to have our Gethsemane moment. We have to have our moment in which the one we brought near rejects us. We have to have our moment on the cross where we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in those moments, we are being transfigured into his image and we're moving from clarity to clarity to clarity to clarity. And all around us, people are seeing Christ. This is why Paul, again in Corinthians, says, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Because precisely in those moments in which I'm hanging on a cross, by the God I call Father, everyone else is seeing the God who's making all things right. That's what it means to be human. That's what holds together those stories that I shared just a moment ago of people who gave us glimpses of what it means to be human. A fourth way in which we're unlike Moses. Moses had his experience on the mountain alone. But we experience God in the valley with the people. You remember the story of the transfiguration? Think about how different that is from this story. Jesus goes up to the mountain not alone but with Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus and they arrive there, Jesus is not alone but the Father is speaking over him and Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter wants to build tabernacles and stay. And what does Jesus do? Immediately takes them back down the valley to the the family, the father whose son is demonized. Because true revelation in this covenant happens not when you're alone on a mountain with God. It happens when you're in the valley with the people who challenge your faith. You see God's face most clearly. And you reflect God's face most clearly when you're struggling to love your neighbor when you're struggling in how to respond to your enemy. In the conflict we're called to experience, we make God's image possible. This is why we have to understand that the church is essential to God's work in the world. Now, I don't want to be hypercritical, and I don't want you to mishear me, but so much of the way that we practice church in this part of the world is really about giving people individual experiences of God. I'm going to to take the time, I'm almost done, but I want to take the time to tell you this snippet because I think this captures some of what I find is deeply problematic about the way we do church. I heard a man, I of course won't name him, he's the head of a major, major church planning organization. And he shared with us 
the story of how that vision birthed in him. And this is the story that he told, as I remember it. And he was at another church planning convention, convention and was bored out of his mind. How many of you have been to church planning conventions before, right? Bored out of his mind. And so he kind of left and was meandering around the, around the city. And he found this Rolls Royce dealership. And he went in, because that's what you do, I guess. He goes into the Rolls Royce dealership. And there's a, a new car. And this was in the 80s. There was a new car on the, on the floor. And he asked the salesperson if he could get in. Sure, you can't drive it, but you can, you can sit in it. So he says that he gets in the car and he shuts the door and he has this kind of epiphany. This is what church planning should be. Church planning should be like trying out a Rolls Royce. He said, because I realized as soon as I shut that door, this is, this is for me. I want this. He's like, and so what we, what we do now as a church planning organization is teach people how to build churches where people, when they shut the door, they think, this is for me. Now, I hope it was God, but something in me revolted at that for lots of reasons. But one is I want you to notice what happened in that image. He's alone. He closes the door. He's shut off from everybody else. He's in a place of comfort, right? Nothing there, nothing, nothing about crosses and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. It's about what we call in the Pentecostal tradition, the flesh, Right? And I realized that maybe so much of the work that we do for God is actually counterproductive. Do you think it's possible that the way we've envisioned evangelism and church planning and even discipleship actually undercuts what God is wanting to do in people's life? That the more successful we are at doing what we want to do, we're actually making it harder and harder for God to do what God wants to do? What if with good intentions, we're like a woman who thinks she wants to touch up the image? Here's the thing. We're not called to have a revelation of God alone. We're called to get down in the valley where the people who are faithless and God-forsaken and difficult live because it's there as we love them that we become his image. If we are his image, we don't need to reflect it back to God. What good does it do to reflect the image back to the one who's giving us the image alone on a mountain? The image belongs in the place where people have forgotten what beauty is. The image belongs in the place where people have forgotten what forgiveness and love and compassion are. And we need to be the kind of people who are willing to live in the mess of human existence and trust that if we do it honestly and faithfully, that God will at least give glimpses to other people around us that this is what humanness looks like. What more could we want? That's what we were made for. That's what we were made for. And so finally, and in closing, the fifth way in which we differ from Moses, and this is the one that Paul draws on explicitly in 2 Corinthians 3, is that we don't veil our humanity. Paul says it's a very different reading of that story. The way we've always heard it is that Moses puts a veil on because he doesn't want the people to see the glory fade, right? That he, that he, because he doesn't want them to see, he, do, he doesn't want to blind them with his glory. Sorry, I preached this sermon three times. He doesn't want them to see the glory fade. That's what Paul, the point that Paul makes. Even though all we've always heard is that Paul doesn't want, uh, Moses doesn't want to blind them. I have no idea why this is happening. This is, I'm going to, I know why it's happening. Here's my Pentecostal moment. I'm unveiling. I'm actually doing this on purpose, right? To show you that as I'm stumbling, you get the point, right? That, again, that's a, that's a homiletic error. But here's the point. Paul is saying, unlike Moses, we don't put a veil on to hide the fact that the glory fades. We let people see that we're human. 
Because it's precisely when we let people see that we're human. If we do it humbly and patiently enough that they see Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. Let them see Jesus. So maybe we don't need to touch up the image. Maybe the paint peeling away just adds to the character of the fact that we're images. And we're imaging the one whose glory is to say, not my will. The one who says, Father, forgive them even while they're crucifying him. God, let us be those kind of people who aren't too proud, who aren't too concerned with their own safety to just say, this is who I am. And with unveiled faces, reflect the glory of this God. Who knows what God can do with that? Will you bow your heads with me? God, thank you for calling us, for claiming us, for putting your spirit in us and requiring us to be these people. This is what we were meant for. And your commands lead us into that freedom. God, help us to yield to that process. Not to hide our humanity like Moses tried to hide his. But to take off the veil and let other people around us see that we are being transfigured precisely as we are willing to be crucified with Christ. In loving our neighbors and our enemies. God, I pray that that will be worked in this coming year. That will be worked through this community as these pastors in their, own, in their own work work into this community, your call to become truly a community in a deeper way than, than they ever have been before. I believe that's what you call for all of us. We pray this with Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.